Pound the Rock is brought to you by The Score Bet. That's right, we brought you the best sports media app, and now we're bringing you the best sports book. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sportsbook experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. So take advantage of exciting promotions and odds boosts all season long. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, and New Jersey. Must be 21+. plus. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, contact 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, and 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey. Visit thescore.bet for more details. Greetings, welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined for the last time in 2021 by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. Happy almost New Year to you and all of our listeners. For the last time in 2021, that is wild. 2022 will be our technically fifth year of doing this. It'll be four full years in the spring, but 2022 will be the fifth different year we've been doing this. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. What can we say about 2021? It was certainly a year. (laughs) It happened. And I'm sure, as always, once you turn the calendar to 2022, it'll be like turning over a new leaf. Everything will be different. Everything will be better. That's always how it works, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, we could say that 2021 was better than 2020, which was awful. But still worse than a lot of... Actually, you know what? No. I was going to say, but still worse than like every other year. That's not true. Your family grew. My family grew through a nephew. Um, so while obviously, yes, the, the, you know, the world, the world still isn't back to uh, the way we remember it at its best. I, I don't think either of us can really complain. So you know what? Hope everyone's staying safe out there. 2021 was better than 2020 and 2022 will be even better. There we go. There's some positivity. I, I, I could complain, to be clear. I won't, but I, I certainly could. Uh, all right, let's get on with this here. We're, we're closing this, like, this isn't This isn't our Festivus episode, all right? You got a lot of problems with your people, and now you're going to hear about them. Well, we do have a lot of problems with some of our takes that we came into this NBA season with. Some grievances there. And you're going to hear about them. Uh, we're going we're gonna to close out 2021 with an episode where... Honestly, I didn't want to do an episode where we talked specifics or nitty gritty about what's going on in the league right now because it's it's a mess. Let's be honest. So we're going to zoom out a little bit and we'll go back and revisit some of our preseason predictions and talk about which ones we're feeling good about, which ones we're feeling not so good about, see how that's looking. And I again, like talk about the league kind of being a bit of a mess right now part of you know some of those preseason predictions not coming to fruition or just the league in general being impossible to predict right now has to do with the fact that uh, a huge chunk of the current NBA workforce is made up of G League call-ups replacement players guys on 10-day contracts uh, so many players in health and safety protocols so many interruptions i mean there there haven't really been that many postponements to be honest but like a lot of games that just don't carry a whole lot of meaning because of how many players have been 
out of the lineup. Did you see the so history making number last night? Yeah, I did see that actually. It was like the the highest number of players who have suited up or have been rostered, I guess, in the NBA this season. It, no, it's to actually play. To actually play, right. And, Greg and, Monroe, when Greg Monroe took the court for the Timberwolves <laughs> last night, he became the 541st player to play in the NBA this season, which is already the most in a season in league history. What a sentence. It, yeah. <laughs> when Greg Monroe... Uh, and shout out Greg Monroe, who played really well, by the way, in that Wolves win over Boston. Yeah, Great to see him back in the league. But yeah, pretty wild that we're a little more than two months into the season and the NBA has already broken the record for the most number of players to see the floor yeah. in a season. And and after the game, uh, according to Dane Moore. Oh yeah, talking who, about Jalen Noel? So yeah. Is this what you're... Uh, yeah. Greg Monroe, after that game in which he became the record-setting 541st different player to play in the league this season, Greg Monroe said, not going to lie, Jalen Noel played awesome tonight, but I had no idea who that was. Yeah, that's, that's the 2021, I mean, 2022 season in a nutshell. I was going to say, like, a, just a perfect summation of where we're at in the NBA right now. And also shout out Jalen Noel, who's been playing quite well yeah. lately. And he himself had a huge game the other night in getting that win over a similar, well, not even similarly shorthanded Celtics team. They still had Jalen Brown and Al Horford healthy. They probably shouldn't have lost that game to the Timberwolves, but we're already getting off track here. So let's get into it, Cash. We're going to, a few things we're going to do on this episode. First, we're going we're gonna to revisit some of our preseason predictions. And those came in a lot of different forms. We did an over-under episode. We did a breakout players episode, a swing players episode, a bold predictions episode. Any of those predictions can apply here. They're all in play. We're each going to pick one uh, that we feel really confident and really good about and one that we feel very bad and (laughs) unconfident in. And I think going both ways, there's a lot to choose from. We've had some pretty good takes and good predictions and some bad ones. So narrowing that down to one of each was pretty tough, but we'll do that. And then we're going to talk about, well, we're each going to pick basically one player that we think has been the most interesting in the league so far and one team that we think has been the most interesting in the league so far. And that's how we'll go about this. So let's start with revisiting some preseason predictions. Cash, which prediction of yours are you feeling the best about at this moment? My bold prediction that a season of disappointment and discontent in Boston would end up landing Jalen Brown on the trade block. Now, I can't say it's a success yet because, or it's a correct prediction quite yet because I don't know, you know, we don't know and it doesn't seem like Jalen Brown has actually been put on the trade block. But I will say that everything I've seen thus far in Boston, COVID issues aside, because obviously that wasn't part of my foreshadowing, but everything I've seen so far in Boston is what I anticipated that would eventually lead to the breakup of Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, or at least the potential of a breakup with trade vultures swirling. The Celtics are not a very good team. I I don't think uh, this team was optimally built. With those two guys, I had, uh, you know, one of my rants earlier this season and one of, uh, I wrote about it and it became an unfiltered episode as well on the Scores YouTube channel about why, why I thought the Celtics need to actually explore 
trading Jalen Brown, at least look into it, at, like for legitimate roster building purposes going forward with Tatum. And if they want to get to a certain level because of the way they might be kind of hamstrung with this specific team and with those two guys. Again, it had nothing to do with like, you can't win if you have both those guys. It was more so, I don't think you can win big picture with both those guys, with the way the team is currently set up and the lack of uh, avenues for improvement. Anyway, I think that's for the most part gone to fruition. The Celtics are a couple games under 500. They're 10th in the East. Uh, I believe they're 9 and 11. Jalen Brown is in the lineup anyway. I will say they are like plus four and a, and change net rating wise when both Tatum and Brown are on the court. But all in all, this team has really disappointed. And I think you have started to see and hear just like little cracks in the foundation that over the course of a season seem to add up that for the most part, usually don't end well. So like perfect example, you've talked about the uh, Timberwolves thing when I brought up Greg Monroe. The Celtics lost to Greg Monroe's Timberwolves last night. And I know, again, they didn't have Tatum, but as you mentioned, they had Brown, they had Horford, and they lost to Greg Monroe's Minnesota Timberwolves. And after the game, Greg uh, Al Horford commented that the Celtics are a team kind of searching for their identity and that they have to look themselves in the mirror. And when presented with those comments, Jalen Brown then said, searching and looking in the mirror? Nah, no comment. So again, is is Jalen Brown on the trade block yet? No, or at least we don't think so. But will I take a victory lap and some credit for predicting rather randomly in October that a disappointing season of discontent and malcontent in Boston would lead to Jalen Brown on the trade block? Yes, I will take a victory lap about it. I mean, I think as sideways as things have gone in Boston, I feel like we're still a ways away from anything like that actually coming to fruition. And obviously, if you're Boston, you explore pretty much any other trade avenue before you consider actually breaking those two guys up. Because... Like you said, it's not like the the issue isn't Brown and Tatum can't win together. They don't make sense together. We've seen them win together in the Mm -hmm. past. We've seen them make sense together. It's just what other avenues do they have to meaningfully improve? But then it's also like, okay, but does putting him on the table give you an avenue to meaningfully improve? Because then you got to get back a player who's considerably better than Jalen Brown and there aren't too many players out there who fit that description who are going to be available. And I will say like the Celtics still have all of their own draft picks in the quiver. So there is a universe in which they could put together a pick heavy trade package to get in uh, a third star or just another player who complements those two guys and makes the roster make a lot more sense. So yes, things aren't going great in Boston right now. And they have to be considering all their options, right? I don't think they're in a position where they can like unequivocally just take that off of the table, but I think they'll explore a lot of things before they get to that point. Yeah, I, I would imagine they would. So that's who your say, victory. You take a victory lap now. And so ourselves. many to choose from. Uh, I had, um, you know, all for the most part, I think my bold predictions are all, not all, because I had OG Ananobi making the all-star team, which... Maybe there would be a conversation to be had if he hadn't missed the last month, but the other ones are all looking pretty good. But the one I'm feeling best about right now, and it's not going to sound bold at all. It's going to sound extremely conservative in hindsight. But if you will remember, 
before the season started, a lot of people, yourself included, were picking the Lakers to come out of the West. And I had them finishing outside the top four in the conference. And Before you continue, because I do want you to take your victory lap. You deserve it. But I will say, and if you remember our season prediction uh, podcast, I said this was the least faith I've ever had in picking a title contender. uh, Sorry, in picking a title favorite. And I also did say at the time that while I thought they would eventually come out of the West and then lose to the Nets, that I did agree that they would be outside the top four in the regular season. Right, which again, is looking extremely conservative please, at this please point Please continue your victory lap. So, so fin- finishing outside the top four and getting bounced before the conference finals was my prediction, which I, I'm feeling very secure in right now. And it, it's if they don't climb up to number five, mm-hmm. I, they're not making it out of the first round. So to, to even get to the second round, uh, would probably surprise me at this point because I think it's, I mean, you know what? After after four, there's a pretty big drop off, right? I don't even know who's fifth in the conference right now. It might be the Clippers at like 17 and 16. I guess there's still a pretty decent chance the Lakers could get up to number five. Um, so maybe they'll still find themselves in the second round. But I think I feel very good about the fact that they're not going to be in the top four. They're not going to be in the conference finals. And I also just feel like that, you know, the process behind making that prediction was pretty sound. I didn't expect them to be 25th in the league in offense. I actually expected them to be better offensively than defensively, which hasn't been the case at all. They've been probably better than I expected at the defensive end. Actually, they're just outside the top 10 right now. Um, But I think as far as the roster, not really making sense, not liking the Westbrook fit, not liking their depth, being concerned about their age, and about how dependent they were going to be on a 37-year-old LeBron and an injury-prone Anthony Davis. All of that has pretty much come to fruition. So uh, I'm feeling pretty good about that one. Yeah, man, as you should. That team's not good. They're flat out not good. Like, we talk about, okay, well, they can still get that fifth seed and, you know, get into the second round of the playoffs and avoid the the West big three. Yeah. They could easily also be in the play in and be fighting for their playoff lives again. Like we have to believe that's a possibility. You know what I mean? Like we're a third of the, more than a third of the way through the season approaching the halfway point. It's, it's way too deep in the season to think, okay, it's some early season malaise or rust or whatever. They'll shake it off and rip off some crazy winning streak and get right back in that top five, top four and be fine. Like that, this team does not look capable of that. And now AD's out for at least another, I guess, three to five weeks. The already shoddy defense further collapses without him. Like this team is going to be probably a, around a 500 team going into February. Like, and and their schedule is only getting tougher. Yeah, they'll probably team, be a lo- so. if we're being honest, they'll probably be a losing team still when AD gets back. And yeah, so, so forget ripping off a winning streak to like get fourth or fifth like at that point you're talking about having to play well just to avoid like playing a play-in game on the road or something like this could get dicey yeah they're 22nd net rating right now and to to your point i mean saying that it's it's not unreasonable to think they're going to be fighting for their playoff lives if they're going to have to play a play-in game i think it's probable that they're going to be playing a play-in game and looking increasingly likely that they might have to play a road play-in game. And and like we talked a few weeks back about LeBron and how age was sort of finally starting to catch up to him. And we were seeing uh, what his decline looked like, both in terms of his 
lessening availability and in terms of what we were seeing from him on the court. I actually think that started to change recently. He's playing some fantastic basketball of late. I think you inspired him. Maybe so. Uh, I, I will say defensively, he like he still has not looked great. There are moments when he cranks it up and you see shades of like the old all-court wrecker that we've known LeBron to be in the past, but more often than not, it's been pretty dispiriting to watch how unengaged he is at that end of the floor. Like there are so many help rotations not made. It's rarely stuff that you sort of recognize, like when he's defending the ball, like there, it's more just like things that he's not doing than, than things that he is actively doing to compromise that defense. But especially given what they need from him in terms of the help rotations, I think it's really left something wanting. And that includes the defensive glass, by the way, where they've struggled all season and he's just like not making an effort to put a body on guys and box out. You made the good point in in the piece you wrote and that then we turn into an unfiltered episode about how good LeBron is still a top 10, probably even the top five player alive, which is incredible given his age, the miles on his body and everything. But this Lakers team and the flawed way they were built and the flawed way they surrounded LeBron would need him to be more like peak godlike LeBron for them to get to the places they want to go. And I'd argue now, and if you watch them, I don't even think it's really an argument, but especially without AD, I'm not even sure that LeBron is enough for this team. Like, sure, that LeBron we all know is capable of elevating a team's floor and ceiling to heights where just no other star, maybe other than Michael Jordan, has ever been able to like drag a team. But even that version of LeBron with this Lakers team and now without Anthony Davis, like really what are we talking about? The difference between finishing fourth or fifth and finishing ninth or tenth? Like, I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, but but but, that, but but that's what I'm saying, right? So like if we're saying even even that version of LeBron doesn't make this team a no-brainer title contender. That that tells you something. And that is a sobering reality to accept for Lakers fans. Oh, it's probably a reality they will not accept, but it's one they should. And I mean, it is... I suppose it is fair to mention that the Lakers just haven't been whole this entire season. And, and maybe that's pointless because that's true of basically every team in the NBA. But I do think the Lakers... What was the status? Like, I think that their most used lineup has been used less frequently than any team in the league, like by an order of magnitude. Like they just haven't had like the same set of players available. Um, Kendrick Nunn hasn't played at all. Like they've had guys in and out of health and safety, obviously AD going down, LeBron missed time early in the season. So it's uh, like, I guess somewhat inevitable that they haven't been able to build any kind of identity or on-court cohesion like that's been part of it but I think even this team at full strength is not a well-built team and they wouldn't be struggling to the extent that they are now but I think to say that they wouldn't be struggling at all would be to undersell how dysfunctional the on-court fit is in a lot of ways and I think they just as far as filling out the back end of that roster they biffed it, man. Like it's just yep. like, like and Mello, they've gotten everything that they could have possibly expected to get out of Carmelo Anthony, man. And, and it still looks this terrible. I've said it a couple times already this season. I'll continue to say it. The most concerning thing for me is that if you look at the years past, or a couple years past with AD and LeBron on the court together, 
that has been the great equalizer. That has been the like, okay, if these guys are healthy and these guys are on the court, it's the best duo. It's the best fitting duo in basketball. They can win a title simply because those two guys are that good at what they do and they fit together that well. And we saw that two years ago. And even last year when they flopped a bit, that the playoff, like if you look at the numbers when those two were on the court in the regular season and then the, the numbers in the playoffs against the team that ended up coming out of the West in Phoenix when LeBron and AD were on the court, they still very much look like that team because those two guys together are that good. The most concerning thing this year for the Lakers and the reason I am already pretty much out on them, we're approaching the halfway point of the season and they are losing the minutes with LeBron and AD both on the court. Now, sure, could that be partly impacted by continuity and, and the things going on around them? It could, but you know, th- there were a lot of continuity issues last year. You know, injuries sunk them last year, but anytime those guys stopped on the floor together, the Lakers were good. That is not the case this year. And I think it does speak to the fact that this is an even worse built team than a previous iteration of them, which was already not optimally built. And it's probably not going to get much better even when there is some continuity in health. Agreed. So that's why that's one I'm feeling best about, even though there was some steep competition, because I'm also feeling good about predicting that the Knicks would finish last in the Atlantic Division and miss the playoffs. I'm still feeling pretty good about my Jazz winning the West prediction, despite the fact that the Warriors and Suns have kind of elevated themselves above the pack so far. I, you know, despite the, their record not being as good, I think the Jazz have basically been around the same level of those two teams, mm-hmm. and I just, I just feel good about the Jazz and what they are, how well they know themselves, and I, I think that. The idea of them being just a regular season team that is doomed to fail in the postseason, I think is really overblown and also just ignores the fact that generally like most teams that ultimately break through in the playoffs are regular season teams first. And like the Bucks last year are a perfect example of that. And I think the Jazz could be this year's version of that team where um, you know, maybe they're not experimenting in the regular season quite as much as the Bucks did last year, but I don't think it's a situation where like they need to prepare themselves for some playoff eventualities where they're going to have to completely change who they are or what they do. I just think they need to be healthier in the postseason than they were last year and not run into a red hot jump shooting team uh, like the Clippers. And I think they'll be okay because their offense is just beyond ridiculous yeah, right now. Oh- we talked about it last week. You you made the point that they, uh, if you look at in relation to league average, they are among the what three best offenses ever. And at yeah. one point this season, we're number one. Mm-hmm. And the thing I'll say too about the Jazz and the whole like regular season team thing is the Jazz, the Warriors, and the Suns are all phenomenal, phenomenal teams, legitimate championship contenders. Guess what? There's three of them, and only two can even make the conference finals. So one of them's going out in the second round. And one of them can go out in the second round despite being healthy and despite playing really, really well in the playoffs. But guess what? They're going to play one of those other teams that one of them is going to have to win, one of them is going to have to lose. And the same thing's going to happen in the West Finals, assuming two of those three get there. So it is also very possible that the Jazz can continue to play this well and not necessarily fall flat on their faces and still lose in the second round. Not because they are built to be a regular season team and don't have the playoff moxie, but because there are three insanely, insanely good teams in the West. That's right. And obviously that I'm sure everyone will take that context into account. If the jazz (laughs) happen to flame out in the second round again, I'm sure that's how it will be treated and nobody will 
pile on and say they were doomed to fail and they're just a regular season team. But uh, yeah, I'm still standing behind that prediction. I think the Jazz are awesome. Uh, I liked my T-Wolves prediction. I think I had predicted the the T-Wolves. I don't remember if I... I think you said they'd finish 10th, which... Okay. They might, so I didn't. I mean, I, I think they got a good chance to finish higher than that. Bold enough, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember I said they would finish higher than the Pelicans, even with a healthy Zion. Well, there's no chance for me to prove that now because Zion's unfortunately may never be healthy. But uh, yeah, but yeah, no, I liked, uh, I liked that prediction. That's you should feel great about that because I think they're finishing tenth at worst. Yeah, and I'll have more to say about the Timberwolves mm-hmm. later in this episode. Rest assured. But uh, and my last one also was that Beal was going to ask out this year, which uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, so I'll say starting, this. Starting to feel pretty good about that one as well. Yeah. I, what I think is interesting with the Beal situation is like you remember how many times, I, whether it was on this podcast, things I wrote on the YouTube side, like how many times I would talk about, okay, like Beal's eventually going to ask out. And similar to not quite as maybe boldly as Dame would declare he still had 10 toes in Rip City. Beal would continually come out and say things about being in Washington long-term, wanting to be a one-team guy, like all that stuff. You know how it was. And I think the really interesting thing is that he was saying all that stuff and and doing all that stuff in years where it would have been very understandable for him to be like, man, I'm done with this stuff. This year, when I know now they've fallen back to earth, but this year when they got off to that great start, all of a sudden was the year where he started to say things that made you kind of be like, hmm, that's interesting. The thing that sticks out to me, I believe it was in a, a, a podcast with Chris Haynes or earlier this month in December, which again, yeah, had they started to come back to earth a little bit? Yes, but they still had a winning record. They were still playing far better than anyone envisioned them playing this year. And again, they were in a much better spot than they've been in previous years when Beal has been all about, you know, getting mad when people bring up trade talks and this and that because he's so committed to DC. So now this year, earlier this year, he talks about his upcoming future and potential extension talks and whether he'll re-up or hit free agency and all this stuff. And uh, and he says, I got time, so I kind of hold the cards right now. I've never been in this position and I'm kind of embracing that, being able to dictate how I want my future to be and where I want to be. Now again, there's not, like he's not saying anything wrong there. It's not like he's coming out and saying I'm out. It's just, I thought it was interesting given how he's never even really said anything like that in years past when the team sucked and looked like they were going nowhere. And then this year where it seems like there might be something there is the year where he starts making these kind of comments. To me, it kind of, it goes to what I've always believed that like God is money, rightfully so good for him, but there would come a point where he would want out and it would be sooner rather than later. You I think correctly predicted it in our preseason predictions. And I do think, I do think it's coming, man. Like I I almost wonder if deep down Bradley Beal, when they were winning was like, Oh damn, it's going to be harder for me to make this like public (laughs) really, really wanted this to go sideways so that I, it kind of seems like he was laying the groundwork even when they were playing well. Exactly. I don't know. I also don't really know what he's talking about when he says he's never been in this position before. Like two years ago, he was a year away from free agency, but then he signed an extension. So Uh, it does seem like he's angling to potentially get out of there, which feels maybe even a little bit overdue. So I'm feeling uh, actually pretty good about most of my bold predictions, which maybe weren't all that bold, but <laughs> but I feel good about those. But we should um, clown ourselves. We should move on. We should move on to some of our our not great predictions. Uh, so I'll start with you. Which one are you feeling the worst about right now? 
So I'm going to actually clown myself for, for a preseason, I guess you can call it prediction, that wasn't in our bold prediction show. And I'm assuming you can figure out what it was, no? Something that you astutely took issue with. Give me a hint. He's really long. Uh-huh. Alexei Pukashevsky. Okay. <laughs> so when we did our breakout players episode, I reserved a couple minutes for Poku because everyone mm. knows I love Poku. I was really enamored with him last year. I and think we I said, wound up reserving like 10 minutes for Poku oh, because perhaps, of how vehemently I disagreed. Episode. Yeah. And what I said was I didn't think he would be the breakout player type that's like, you know, uh, paving his way to stardom. But I did think he was going to break out in a way where like, he was going to become at least a legit rotation player and be the kind of player like everyone now knows and thinks like, okay, there's like some, like I thought he would break out reputation wise. I thought this would be the year in his second year where he at least starts to look like a solid rotation, like good NBA player. He has been probably the worst player in the entire NBA this year. It, Including all the 10 day guys that got called yes. up in the last out of five, weeks. out of a record breaking <laughs> 541 NBA players who have touched an NBA court this season. Alexei Pokashevsky, my guy. A guy I still have faith in, by the way, okay? I might, you might be hearing me pick him as a breakout player eight months from now. Has been the worst in the league, and I have to take that L. And I have to clown I haven't, I haven't called myself the clown of the week since I referred to Paul George as a tin man, and then he shed that tin armor and balled out in the playoffs. But, yeah, no, I got to take an L on this one. He's, he, he's gone worse than last year. Like, I can say that confidently. Uh, I think he's had like maybe two good games, game and a half that were even NBA level. This guy, he's averaging four points, four rebounds, and one assist on 34, 21, 50 shooting. He's now down under 15 minutes per game. He's almost fallen out of the rotation for a team that at certain points this year, you or I could have cracked that goddamn rotation. Poku's been bad. We don't We don't even have to, you know, I, I wasn't going to waste much more time than this. I, you know, I'll cede the mic to you. And if you want to go on a victory lap about this, that that's fine. But I don't have much more to say about this other than it wasn't a bold prediction. It was a breakout player candidate, but fair is fair. You asked me to find my worst prediction of our preseason pods. And that was it. It was me saying that Alexei Pokashevsky was going to into some form breakout this season. He is not. Yeah. He is no. very much broken in. Uh, I, I don't feel the need to take a victory lap on this one. I mean, anybody, th that wasn't even the first time that we had disagreed about Pokashevsky, by the way, because we had had a conversation about him the season earlier when I tried to get you to pump the brakes on the hype train you were driving for him after he had like a couple of good games while the Thunder were in the midst of an incredible tank job. So anyone who's been with us for, you know, the last few months basically knows where I've stood on him. And I'm not even saying that like he can't be a good NBA player one day. I just think he is so far from being a finished product, needs so much refinement in terms. I mean, his shooting is obviously a huge problem right now. He has shown flashes of having a good feel for the game and having some passing chops, but it's just all over the place. I mean, mm -hmm. his ball handling is all over the place. Like his understanding of where to be on defense is all over the place. Obviously his frame needs a lot of filling out still. And it's like, I think I said before the season, he's just an unmolded ball of clay. And I think it's going to be a few years before we know what shape that's really going to take. And he could totally crap out and, and amount to 
nothing. I think that is on the table. Yeah. I also think it's on the table that he does figure it out and becomes a seven footer with some ball skill that can be really effective in the league. It's just, um, I think it's just going to take a long time to get there. And that's why I thought you were being way premature when you projected a breakout for this season. But, but yeah, I don't need to say any more than that. I appreciate you taking the L and I can't wait. It gave us content though. It gave us content months later. Absolutely. I can't wait to revisit this in a few months when you pick them as a, as a year three breakout next season. But uh, I'm going to take a big fat L on predicting the Grizzlies in our over under episode to finish under 41 wins. And this is, it's particularly bad because not only did I predict that they would, but this was among my, my three like most confident bets that I picked. And the thing is, the reason I, I wanted to highlight that at the time was that I just didn't like their off season and I still don't like their off season. And I'm thinking, look, the, the, the JV thing that the trade for Adams and getting, you know, moving up in the draft essentially to draft Zaire Williams from a process perspective, I could at least understand that move getting rid of Grayson Allen for almost literally nothing is one that from a process perspective, I still don't understand and still don't like, I still don't think this team had a great off season. And I think they could be, they could be even further along than they are right now. Like if they had JV and Grayson Allen in the mix right now, instead of Steven Adams and Zaire Williams, I guess they'd still probably be the fourth best team in the West, which they are now, but I think they'd be a lot closer to maybe brushing up against that upper crust. I think they'd have a higher ceiling. For sure, floor maybe wouldn't be much different, and they'd probably be in the exact same spot they're in. But I agree with you that they'd have a higher ceiling, even maybe this year. Yeah, but you know, th- my feeling at the time was they were not a particularly good offensive team last year, and losing the guy who had been arguably their best offensive player, you know, voluntarily losing him, was going to make it really difficult for them to tread water at the offensive end. And I didn't think that going from JV to Stephen Adams was going to bring really any kind of meaningful defensive upgrade either so you know barring basically significant internal improvement i saw them taking a step back but significant internal improvement is exactly what they've gotten and it's pretty hard for me to argue that they're gonna finish under 500 given that they're 21 and 14 right now given that the offense that i expected to fall off is yeah. instead the sixth best offense in the NBA right now. Uh, and that's despite Ja missing, what, 12 games yeah. in the middle of the season? And, uh, you know, their defense after this absolutely disastrous, cataclysmic start has totally stabilized to the point that they're now an above-average defensive team. I was just dead wrong, man. And I think, you know, there are a lot of factors that can have contributed to that. I think Jaw's been terrific when he's been healthy at the offensive end, obviously not so much defensively, but Jaron Jackson has taken a, a, I think a meaningful step forward at both ends of the floor and Desmond Bain, maybe more than anyone on that team. Like I just didn't see this second year leap from him coming. Like I liked Desmond Bain as a rookie. Everyone knew he was a steal on draft night. Yeah, but he very much seemed like the type of rookie who was I mean, maybe just to me, and maybe it was just a lack of imagination on my part, but he seemed to me like the kind of player who was going to come in with a high floor because he was a knockdown shooter, 
a solid team defender who understood like where to be and how to defend within the team scheme, but wasn't necessarily going to have a particularly high ceiling or have much upward mobility in terms of his growth. And then this year it's like, man, he is doing all kinds of stuff off of the dribble, like really making headway as a pull-up shooter, as a driver. And I think, you know, I, there are still limitations with him defensively, possibly in part because like he still has these short arms, right? His arms are thicker than they are long. <laughs> and, and I think that can lead to some trouble at the point of attack. He's not the best screen navigator, but as a team defender, like he is still like finding ways to make an impact at that end of the floor. And after a tough start at the defensive end, I think he's gotten a lot better, but just as an offensive player, he has given them exactly what they needed last year, which is, first of all, volume three-point shooting, but also the ability to create and shoot threes off of the bounce and to be, you know, an attacker off of the catch. Somebody, like, I think he's been really effective in transition. Just an incredible second-year jump from him that I think has made a lot of this possible. And then, I, I guess just depth can go a really long way especially in the regular season. And I think that's the thing that maybe more than anything I didn't account for enough it was just, you know, especially in, in a season like this where every team is dealing with major absences in one form or another, like having a roster that can go, you know, 12 or 13 deep can be a real advantage. Uh, and I think the Grizzlies have really capitalized on that. So I apologize to anybody who took my advice and put money on on the Grizzlies under because that's looking like a big, big whiff. So those were our, our good predictions, our bad predictions. I think we can cap that segment there. Uh, I will say, actually, the, 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 the real competition that I had in the awful Grizzlies prediction was, uh, the, and the reason I didn't go with this was because I didn't actually make a formal prediction about them in any of the episodes that we did but we did talk about it on the pod and i did write a piece about it i expected the blazers to be good this season mm, i did not they suck like they suck man, man they're trash they just gave up 132 to a Doncicless dallas team that has not been good offensively pretty much all season and right. man it's just it's just a huge huge mess in portland right now and yeah, that is up there among my biggest misses was thinking that team was going to be good. Disaster. They're they're down bad right now, but okay. I'm yeah, they're, they're not good. They're trash. They're trash. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transition us to the break from there. We'll come back. We'll do uh, a quick trash talk segment, and then we'll hit on some interesting players and teams. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Scores YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, well, Fawn, I know you're hosting this week, but before I see the mic back to you, I do have to remind you that we have one edition of our KFC Trash Talk segment left. Talking Trash, presented by KFC. Talk Trash, don't make trash, Wolfond. And I know you've made a lot of trash for some of these takes. As have I. 
got a big life-size figurine of Pokashevsky looking at me right now. No, I don't really. But as a reminder, uh, we've done it the last few weeks. What we'll do in this segment is highlight an instance from the past week of players beefing or some sort of NBA-related trash talk from around the league. And this week, what I wanted to dive into was Christmas Day. No Trey Young in the building because he's in health and safety protocols. The Knicks up big on a pretty lackluster version of the Hawks without Trey Young and a few other guys. And Knicks fans starting the F Trey Young chant again, as they did during the playoffs. Again, without him in the building. My, my take on it is, because I saw some people saying, okay, like let fans have fun, whatever. And and you know me, I'm all about good trash talk. I like it. I like the banter. I'm all for ha- letting fans have fun, letting you know the, the tensions rise. But if you recall during the playoffs, I was quite disenchanted with the way Knicks fans treated Trey. Like even then, it, like whether it was the F Trey Young stuff or even like when they were chanting Trey Young's balding, and I thought it was just like you know, like twenty thousand people chanting like critiquing a 22 year old's physical appearance like i don't know none of it like sat right with me but anyway i think this comes off somebody like spit on him also oh yeah yeah it was it was a disaster like it was it was disgusting but there's also just the fact like to me this is pathetic like i got no i got no problem with great trash talk and fans making uh a road environment for the opposing team absolutely hellish obviously without crossing any lines but to me, this just smacked of desperation. And not just because he wasn't in the building. Like, here's what I'll say. Like, if you remember when Celtics fans, you remember the first year Kyrie left when the Nets came to town, but he wasn't in the lineup and, and they were chanting, where's Kyrie or whatever. And then Kyrie went and, and made that long post on Instagram. That I thought was like a little, it was more, it was way funnier to me. And I, I was cool with it because it's like, hey, there was actually like a, a true history there with the team. And a player and the guy had left and there was hard feelings. And also they're chanting, where's Kyrie? They're kind of trolling him for not being there. Almost in like, is he scared to be? Like that to me is more along the lines of what I'm saying. is like, let fans have fun. It's funny. The next thing to me is a lot worse and more pathetic because your only history with this guy is that he kicked your ass in the playoff. Like there's no, it's not like there was a rivalry because he did something you perceived as disrespectful. He wasn't on your team and then he left in a contentious way. He didn't even necessarily do anything crazy disrespectful in the playoffs other than bow to you when the like scene cut your season was over. And so to me, it's just like, there's a patheticness about it. And it's so very Knicks where all this guy did was kick your ass and beat you in the playoffs. You were way more antagonizing to him than he ever was to you. And now the guy's out in health and safety protocols in the middle of a pandemic. And you're still chanting F Trey Young when he's not even in the building. So that's my take on it. I don't know whether you care or have a take on it. But that is my take on what I consider a pathetic, pathetic level of trash talk from Knicks fans. And I put it on Twitter that day and I can very much see it happening. Like the year is 2040. Trey Young's being inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. And there's Knicks fans there chanting F Trey Young while they lament the fact that their team by that point will have not made a conference finals in 40 years. Bravo, Honestly, Knicks fans. Yeah. Bravo, Knicks fans. <laughs> I think I, I think I'll respect it if Knicks fans show up to Trey Young's Hall of Fame induction just to chant F Trey Young. And yeah. I feel like Trey Young actually would appreciate that. I would too, too actually. I would I would appreciate that more than them chanting it on the Christmas Day game while he's out in health and safety protocols. Yeah, I mean that's just it, it's kind of been that 
type of season for the Knicks. And I don't know if there's really much more to it than that. Like that is what they have to hold on to right now is their hatred of Trey young and not really much else. So I don't even know that I would expect much different from the Knicks faithful. It's just been, it's been a disappointing season, which was entirely foreseeable. I'm sorry to say like they played over their heads last year, their defense overperformed. Then they got worse defensive personnel and didn't make enough of an offensive upgrade to offset that. Julius Randle has sort of regressed as expected. Like it was all perfectly foreseeable if you weren't wearing those Knicks colored glasses. And, you know, given how feel good last year was, it's just basically since they ran into Trey Young and the Hawks in the playoffs last year, it's been all downhill. So I can kind of understand them holding on to that resentment because what else are you holding on to at this point? Yeah, that's, that's very fair. Uh, I wrote about the Knicks last week actually, and then talked about all of those things. So maybe that's something we can get into more detail with kind of like the reasons why the Knicks have come crashing back to earth, perhaps on a future episode, maybe next week, if we get back to two a week in the new year, but until then, yeah, once we, been... once, once we get back to big market Tuesdays, yeah, we'll yeah, see exactly. if we can slide them in. Yeah. We'll see if we can slide this disgusting team in. Anyway, that was our Talking Trash segment. Shout out to the real MVP of Talking Trash, KFC. By 2025, all their consumer-facing packaging will be fully home compostable, putting them one step closer to being the GOAT, the greenest of all time. Hosting duties, back to you, Wolfon. Okay, Cash, here's how we're finishing out this episode. We have each picked a player that we feel has been the most interesting player in the league this season and a team that we feel has been the most interesting in the league. So I'll kick it over to you to start. Player or team, up to you. What do you got for me? My most interesting player in the league through a third of the 2021-2022 season is a guy that a few weeks ago, when I called him, in my opinion, the fifth Oh my right. yeah, the, we we're overlapping. We when I said I thought this guy was the fi- should be fifth in MVP balling right now, you took exception to it. Can you we just react take a second? Yeah, I know. All right, I'm going to let you finish that thought. But can we can we take a second and just appreciate the fact that out of 541 players who have played in the NBA this season, we managed to pick the same yes, player. That's insane. Okay, go ahead. Yes, yes I, right. I I pushed back. Finish you 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 looked at me with a look of disdain as if I had just said that Alexei Pokashevsky was going to have a breakout <laughs> year. And all I said, Wolfon, was that DeMar DeRozan had been, to me, the guy that deserved a top five finish in MVP voting. And I am more convinced of that now than I was a few weeks ago, and perhaps you are too. DeMar DeRozan, in like... There might even be some pushback, not from you, obviously, because we have overlap, but maybe even someone listening will be like, okay, but is he really the most interesting player in the league? Like, is he that different of a player he's been the last couple of years? Here's to me why he is so interesting. We are talking about a guy in year 13 of his career at 32 years old who is playing the best overall basketball of his career. This is a guy who's been a, what, four or five-time All-Star, a guy who's gonna, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, and I was like even saying, man, like DeMar DeRozan might be Hall of Famer when you start putting everything together. He's going to get to 20,000 career points. He is, not almost, he's going to make the All-Star game team this year, which would make him a five-time All-Star. If he continues to play like this, he's probably going to make him an All-NBA you make an All-NBA team and make him a two-time All-NBA selection. You start putting everything together, an Olympic gold medalist, like, the Hall of Fame resume is starting to come together. And so, yeah, like, again, is it that interesting? I think it is. 
27 points, 5 rebounds, 4 assists, and only 2 turnovers per game, despite a usage rate over 30%. I went and looked at players this season who have usage rates of at least 30% and who have averaged at least 4 assists per game. No one in the league, other than DeMar DeRozan, averaging as few turnovers as he is. Everyone else averaging at least 2.5 turnovers per game. He's down at 2.0. Like His ability to take care of the ball, which he's always done, even... Uh, in his highest volume Toronto days, has been remarkable. It's only become more remarkable as he's become more of a playmaker too. So I want to shout out that part of his game. Uh, shooting 51-37-88 on the year, 53-37-88 if you go by two-point percentage, first number, which I know you like to do. Just a hair under 60% true shooting. Similar numbers as he actually had a couple years ago in San Antonio, except the difference now is that he's doing it as Maybe we'll disagree on whether he is the best player or not, but to me, he's doing it as the best player on a 21-10 and 10 team that is on pace for 55 wins, a team that's number two in the East right now, that is top five overall. He's been insane in the clutch. He came back from being out in health and safety protocols, only missed three games, but was out 15 days. And in the the four games since returning from that, there's been no rust. He's averaged 31 and six on good efficiency. His first game back after 15 days off when everyone was wondering if it would take him a bit to shake the rust off. He came in and dropped 38 in a win over the Lakers. The bulls are plus 8.1 with him on the court minus 5.6 with him off it for a net uh, total on off net rating of plus 13.7. They perform like a top three team with them, a bottom five team without him. You just go up and down the list. Now it sounds like I'm just making the case for why he should be in the MVP conversation. But these are all reasons why I think, given where he is in his career, given a lot of complaints people have had of him over the years, and just a, a bunch of different reasons, I think for him to be doing what he's doing in year 13 at age 32 on a new team that is very good, it's just all not just impressive, but I think to me it does make him the most interesting player in the league this season. Yeah, I would no longer push back on the idea of him as a top five MVP candidate. I still wouldn't have him there. I'd, I'd have him beat ahead of him. I'd have Trey Young ahead of him. But I would you have go, might, would you have Gobert ahead of him? Yeah, I'd have Gobert ahead of him as well. Actually, man, go, Gobert's been insanely I know, I know, good this season, uh, and so is Donovan Mitchell. By the way, like that between the two yeah. of them is a conversation as well. Between okay, La- Levine's been pretty damn good too in Chicago. Yeah, but I did. Definitely don't think that it's egregious. Like if you wanted to have Demar as the fifth guy, and by by the way, LeBron is in that mix as well. But I would say it's in, it DeRozan. The fact that we're even having a conversation about DeRozan legitimately being in a conversation with those guys this year, in terms of overall like impact on a fifty-five win pace team, I think in and of itself is is testament to how good he's been, how interesting his season has been, and how impressive it's been. Yeah, and I think look, I'm not saying that he hasn't improved in a lot of different ways he he definitely has in a lot of ways he's also like the same player that he's been for the last few years he's just kind of like he's gotten better at the things that he was already doing and I think he's interesting because nobody else in the league really plays like him he's taking 38 percent of his shots from long mid-range which uh, the only player with a higher proportion of shots from that zone in the league is LaMarcus Aldridge who himself is having a pretty interesting season and this is unrelated but LaMarcus is shooting 57% on long twos which is that shit even though that's always sort of been his zone like that's insane yeah Uh, but DeRozan's like a 53 or 54% from that range and like you mentioned basically right around 60% true shooting 
despite that shot profile. And that's also powered, obviously, by the fact that he's still getting to a free throw line at a very, very high rate. But I think the thing with DeMar, like in the past, part of the issue teams have sort of had building around him is that it's hard to play him off the ball because he doesn't bring a whole lot of gravity as a spot up shooter. And yet running your offense through him, having him be sort of your primary on ball creator also comes with certain baked in limitations. And I think those limitations have largely fallen away. Um, And, you know, for one thing, I do think he's become a better off ball player. Like, yeah, teams are still going to help liberally off of him, but he's become a lot better. I think at leveraging that inattention uh, better as a cutter, especially along the baseline, like really, really effective baseline cutter these days. And I think he's done a good job sort of playing off of Levine and off of Vucevic. But when the ball's in his hands, I just think he has become a lot better at just sort of like not getting sped up. And I, I just think he has so many different ways of creating shots for himself, right? Like when he's facing the basket, that sidestep move has become super reliable for him. And Obviously, with his back to the basket, it's like he can hit you with all different kind of moves up and unders. His turnaround jumper, like his balance is like almost unrivaled in the league. And just a number of different ways that he can create for himself. And then also the playmaking where over the last few years, I think he's gotten really good as an inside out playmaker with the kind of drive and kick stuff. I think he's started to become a little bit better as an outside in playmaker. And you mentioned the low turnovers. Like, that's always been a thing with him. Like, he's always been a low turnover player. But I actually think, like, the handle just keeps getting better and better to where it's really hard to push him off the ball and really hard to prevent him from getting to where he wants to go. You know, so what's really interesting to me, I guess, is are we going to see the playoff limitations that we've seen in the past crop up again? Because he has a lot to prove in that regard. And as much as any player in the league, I think is going to have an opportunity to change the conception of what he is as a player and what he can be. So to me, it's like those things, like obviously the, the defensive limitations, maybe first and foremost, but also the limitations as an off ball player and as a shooter have cropped up in the playoffs and made him, out to be, I guess, just a regular season player, a regular season floor raiser of the highest order, but not necessarily a guy that you want to have your team built around when it comes to winning a playoff series. What do you think about that? Like, do you, are you worried at all about whether any of this is going to carry over to the playoffs or do you think he's just changed enough and gotten that much better as a player that it's just going to, he's going to be the same guy in a postseason setting? No, I, th- I, th- I think he has changed enough. I think the improvements, whether they're incremental or not, like are still enough that I do think he will be better in the playoffs. I do wonder too, like whether this Bulls team is, has been built in a way that better insulates him from some of that, you know, like obviously playing with Kyle Lowry in Toronto was great for him and, and Lowry was the better overall player. And, you know, they made an Eastern conference finals run together, but in Toronto, he never had a dynamic offensive talent like Zach Levine beside him. You know what I mean? And so that in and of itself will help insulate him. To your point, I think he is, maybe not by a huge margin, but he is a better off-ball player than he ever was in Toronto. I do think all those little things will help. 
Now, will teams pick on him defensively in the playoffs? Sure. Will he have a bad shooting night here or there because of his shot diet and profile? Of course. But I do think there is reason to believe he will be a better playoff performer this year than in years past. Can he be guy who looks like he might be a top five to 10 player alive guy in the playoffs? I don't know. I hope he can be because I think it would be a great story. Maybe that part I'm not as convinced, but I will point out as well that the last time he did play in the playoffs in San Antonio, while his numbers weren't as good as they are right now, they were still pretty good. Like he was actually really good in that, um, that seven game loss to Denver a couple years ago or a few years ago, whenever that was now where his efficiency, you know, wasn't great, but it was solid enough in a playoff setting as well. And uh, I think he ended up averaging like 22 and six in that series and shot just under 50% from two point range. Like he, I thought he was pretty solid in that playoff series. People don't talk about it enough because it was a first round series. And I don't know how many people were really watching San Antonio, Denver, Jokic obviously stole the show, but I think you look at his last playoff performance, you look at the incremental changes to his game, what he's doing better and different. I do think there's reason to believe he will be better this time around in the playoffs. And I really hope he is because I think he deserves the praise that will come with that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things, right? One is refs do sort of tend to tighten the whistle in the playoffs. And that obviously affects players like DeRozan who rely on getting to the free throw line. And sort of like the the grifting foul drawing techniques can maybe be less effective in a postseason setting. That's part of it. Uh, Another part of it in the past is like uh, opponents could sort of just stick like a long perimeter defender on him and sort of shade extra bodies his way. And that would sort of fluster him and get him out of his comfort zone. But I don't feel like there have really been any one-on-one matchups that have given him too much trouble this season. And I think your point about him playing next to Levine is an important one, right? Like they have to account for him as well. And just in general, I think DeRozan is playing in more space than he ever has before. And that makes it a lot harder for teams to throw extra attention at him without getting burned for it. I mean, even Lonzo, man, Lonzo shooting like 42% on seven plus three point attempts per game. And then you have Vooch who's able to space it out at the five spot. Uh, And obviously Levine can shoot the lights out and Caruso has been reasonably effective as a catch and shoot guy. And that, yeah, I think that just like playing in that amount of space has really helped open up the mid range for him. And as part of the reason he's just been absolutely killing teams from that zone and then he's he's really well insulated on defense with Lonzo and Caruso next to him in the backcourt. And then also like the DeRozan and bench lineups that have been so effective. Pretty much all those guys, apart from Kobe White, I guess, but all those guys off their bench that he's usually playing with are very effective defensively. So I think that level of insulation on defense, that level of space on offense, and just his increasing comfort level as a one-on-one player I mean, he's still been, we talked about this a couple weeks and it's barely changed 1.26 points per possession in isolation on like a high volume. I I think you can continue to say uh, he has been, you know, maybe apart from Durant, the best one-on-one player in the NBA this season. And maybe it's not going to be as effective in the playoffs, but I don't see like some huge fall off coming for him. And I think, uh, you know, the, the Bulls are a contender, man. Like they, they might be a fringier contender, but they are a contender. And that means that DeMar DeRozan is going to be either the best player or like the one B on a team that has championship aspirations and how the postseason goes for him is going to 
dictate how far the Bulls can go and is going to dictate a lot about how DeMar DeRozan is talked about and viewed as a player. Because the last time he was in that situation as like a, you know, a top two player on a championship contending team, he shat the bed. Like he was absolutely awful. Uh, I'm talking about the Raptors series against the Cavs in 2018, the year the Raptors flamed out and then fouled out. The last moment that he spent in a Raptors uniform was him taking a frustration foul, clotheslining Jordan Clarkson in the the fourth game of a sweep at the hands of a lower seated team and walking off the court. That was how his Raptors tenure ended. And the game before that, he was benched while they made a furious comeback. That's right. So yeah, yeah, that and you're right. He was good for the Spurs in that series against Denver, but it's just comparatively low stakes. It's right. not the same that it's going to be like for him uh, with this Bulls team that has actual like championship aspirations. And for all those reasons, uh, I mean, I guess you know I don't need to convince you because you picked him <laughs> for the same reasons that I did. But I think that's what makes him the most interesting player in the league right now. Is it's just how well he's playing and and I think also the questions about sustainability and what it's going to look like in the playoffs. So ninth consecutive year that DeMar DeRozan is averaging at least 20 points per game and over that 9 year span where with pretty remarkable durability as well, he's averaged roughly 23 points, 5 rebounds and 5 assists over a 9 year span. It's really really awesome player. Yeah. That for you know, various reasons, maybe doesn't get the due that his consistent excellence deserves. Just, yeah, one thing, like, I, I think he's still a defensive liability. Despite yeah, the fact, despite the, fact that the, the Bulls have been way better defensively with him on the floor this season. And that's been a big part of the reason, you know, you mentioned the on-offs with him, which is a reversal uh, of all those past years you mentioned with with, like, the raw stats that he's putting up hasn't translated to his teams being better with him on the floor they've mostly been better offensively with him on the floor. It's just been defensively where they've consistently been worse this year. They're way better on both sides of the ball with him on the floor. And the defense is driven, I think in large part by opponent shooting variants where opponents are shooting 33% from three with him on the floor and 41% with him off. And I don't think that he (laughs) is uh, creating the conditions under which that opponent shooting is changing so so dramatically like opponents actually get to the rim quite a bit more when he's on the court which i don't think is necessarily a good sign um that's definitely still an area in which you could see you mentioned like maybe he'll get hunted in the playoffs and and exposed in that way i think that's still possible okay i'm just gonna throw it out there because you're gonna ask me anyway most interesting team i had the bull like so i was i had the bulls and or the grizzlies you ended up already talking about the grizzlies as part of your worst prediction segment so i'll say then i'll go with the bulls as my most interesting i know we've talked about them pretty recently too but as you said like they are a contender if you look at a lot of different things eyeball test the actual numbers the underlying numbers like they're a contender they are on pace for 55 wins they survived their covid outbreak you know as well as you could now again they were they they benefited from the fact some of their games were postponed so they didn't have to play them with the rosters they would have had the field, but they had those three games and whatever. They're back to rolling now with DeRozan back in the lineup and a, a pretty healthy team. And you just look at everything. They have a top five offense, a top 10 defense. If you look at teams in the league right now who are at least top five on one end and at least top 10 on the other, you're looking at the Bulls, the Jazz, and the Warriors. 
and we talked about how much of a juggernaut each of the Jazz and Warriors are. Now they're obviously contenders. The Bulls, I think maybe it's not as obvious because what happens a lot of times is if if people don't go into a season with the preconceived notion that a team is a contender or, or can't even fathom that a team might be a title contender, even if they then play like one in the regular season, I just think for whatever reason, like people don't tend to accept it because it's not what they expected. You know what I mean? It's like one of those things where you can't actually envision DeMar DeRozan, Zach Levine, Lonzo Ball, and Nikola Vucevic standing around the Larry O'Brien trophy. When it, you know what I mean? Like you can't, you don't see it that way. So you think it was like, no, no, they're not really a contender. They'll fall apart. But it's like, if we go by the sample size we've got so far this season, the only sample size we have of this team playing together, they very much do look like a contender. They're on pace for 55 wins. They're top 10 on both sides of the ball, top five on one side of the ball. They have a top five overall record. I think the third or fourth best net rating in the league. They have a player in DeMar DeRozan who's playing at arguably a top five MVP level. They have a they have two great shot creators in DeRozan and Zach Levine who are also good playmakers. The offense hums. Uh, Vucevic, I think, has come along the last few weeks. And also, even when he wasn't putting up the numbers early in the season, I think his defense has been really solid. He's been good for them. Uh, they've got as good a perimeter defensive cores you could ask for between Caruso and Lonzo Ball like everything is there now do they have the true true alpha type generational star at the top that you usually think of when you think of contenders no they don't even as good as DeRozan is they don't have that guy and I don't ultimately think they will win the championship or even make the finals but I do think that this team is built and is performing at a level that they very much are in the mix to make the Eastern Conference Finals. Like this team can go toe-to-toe with Miami. I I might still pick Miami in the playoff series, but the Bulls are good enough to go toe-to-toe with a team like Miami. I think I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, but I think for them, the important thing is going to be seeding and the way the bracket kind of shakes out. You know, if they can avoid, if they can finish second and avoid Brooklyn and maybe... Uh, Milwaukee somehow finishes fourth or something and Milwaukee and Brooklyn got to play each other in the second round. Like there are ways where I think the Bulls very much are an Eastern Conference Finals team. And if you get there, you are putting yourself in a position where a bounce here or there and you are in the finals, an injury here or there, not that you want those things. But if you're good enough to even get that far, you put yourself in a position where you're at least close enough where a break here or there and you're in the finals and then things can happen. So yeah, I know that's a lot of ifs and a break here or there, but the fact that we're even talking about the Bulls like this and debating whether they are a bona fide championship contender, again, just like we were saying with DeRozan, to me, that is all the proof you need that they have been one of the most interesting teams in the league because who the hell, even the most optimistic Bulls fan when they saw this team put together, who saw them being this good? I don't know anyone saw them being like 55 win title contending good. I think when we talked about the Bulls, however long ago that was, I mentioned that I hate the Bucks matchup for them, and yep. that still holds true. Uh, I I feel pretty good about them in any other matchup. Uh, you know, not like I wouldn't pick them to beat the Nets necessarily in a series, but I wouldn't be shocked if they did. And I think that could totally be like a seven-game drag-it-out series that could go either way. I would heavily favor the Bucks. I just think there are sort of matchup mechanics that swing that way but um but i think they could they could beat anybody else so yeah it will depend on how the bracket shakes out but they're a top three team in the east in my opinion and i'm really curious to see 
you know, what they can show us the rest of the season to maybe change our understanding of their ceiling. And, you know, at that point, it's just, we got to see them do it in the playoffs. It's going to be Zach Levine's first time playing in the postseason. And like we mentioned, a chance for DeRozan's redemption. My most interesting team, I alluded to it earlier in the episode, it's the Minnesota Timberwolves. I don't know what to make of them from one game to the next. I can't really seem to figure out how good they are or how good they can be. They are flawed. They are fascinating. They are stylistically unique. And I also think, you know, I'm looking at the Western Conference bracket right now. And obviously, you know, we we, we know how stratified it is. Like the top three teams are far and away the three best teams. And the Grizzlies have sort of separated themselves as like, almost in a tier by themselves is like the number four team. That's clearly not in the top three, but seems a cut above everybody below them. I think after that, and I, I, you know what? I don't, I don't even put the wolves that far behind the Grizzlies, if at all, in terms of just overall quality, like the Grizzlies are obviously way deeper, but in terms of top end talent, I think I might like Minnesota better, but I guess my point is like, after that, after that top four, you know, barring, Jamal Murray coming back at like, you know, close to a hundred percent or like Kawhi Leonard coming back for the Clippers. I think maybe Minnesota is like the next best team in the West. They have the potential to be, you know, I like we've talked even before the season, we talked about our, our concerns about their lack of two way players and how that might affect them. And we have totally seen that bear out, right? Because while they have, played I think better than we and almost anybody expected them to play at the defensive end of the floor their reliance on certain defensive specialists has helped contribute to them being 22nd on offense and figuring out that balance it's been kind of a constant push and pull that I think we're gonna continue to see like they're gonna have to keep trying to figure that out the balance that they've struck with their ideal starting five that they unfortunately have only gotten to play for 127 minutes this season has been insanely promising because in those 127 minutes, that lineup, which is D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards, Carl Towns, Pat Beverly, and Jared Vanderbilt has a 138 offensive rating, an 88.4 defensive rating, and a 49.6 net rating. So not bad. Yeah. They've stumbled on something for sure with that starting five. They just unfortunately haven't been able to get to it all that much because pretty much the entire <laughs> the entire starting lineup is out in health and safety protocols right now. Before that, Russell had uh, had missed a bunch of time. And while he was out injured before, I think they lost every game they played. And then he came back and they started winning games again. He has like secretly been the glue of that team at both ends of the floor honestly, which has been, I came close to making him my most interesting player in the league because I feel like he's maybe been better. I thought that's who you were going to pick. He's maybe been better defensively than offensively this season, which is not something I ever imagined saying about D'Angelo Russell, but he's been really good defensively. And when we talked about this team a few weeks back, I kind of mentioned, you know, he's making all the right rotations, but there are times when even when he does make the right rotation, you don't really feel him because he's just not a super physical defender. He's not very strong. And so he can get himself in the way, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to impact the ball. I think that's still true to an extent, but after watching them a little bit more, I I would also walk that back and just say, 
he's just genuinely been a good defender this year. And like primarily off of the ball, which is what the Wolves are asking him to do. Like they're, they're quote unquote hiding him on weaker offensive players, but it's, it's almost less as a way to hide him and more a, a way to just unlock him as like an off ball roamer. Um, and he's like pulling all the way over. Like he might be guard, guarding a guy in the weak side corner and he's like on the opposite side of the paint, flooding the strong side, getting in driving lanes, directing traffic, you know, and he's sniffing out cuts. He's just been excellent. Uh, and so positionally sound defensively. And that has kind of obscured the really poor shooting season that he's having. And it hasn't really dulled his impact. Like they have been at their best by far with him on the court. And, um, you know, similar with, with the DeRozan thing where it just sort of comes down to opponent shooting in a lot of ways. Like the fact that they have allowed 11 fewer points per hundred with him on the court than with him on the bench uh, is in large part because opponents are shooting 29% from three with him on the court compared to 38% with him off. But I do think he's been solid defensively. And with him, Edwards, and Towns on the floor together, that's a a much bigger sample than like the five-man unit that I mentioned. That's like 450 minutes this season. Uh, They're plus 13.6 net rating with like a 98 defensive rating. So it's hard not to be encouraged by that. And I think, you know, watching them, it mostly passes the eye test. Like I think there are some elements of smoke and mirrors with their defense where they're just giving up so many corner threes. They have the league's highest opponent free throw attempt rate and they're 28th in defensive rebound rate. And I just think they're so reliant on forcing turnovers and they're so reliant on these sort of frenetic rotations because they're playing towns at the level of the screen and like they're super aggressive. It's just such a fine tightrope to walk that I don't know that I have a ton of faith in them maintaining a top 10 defense, but I also think their offense can get better. So I definitely think they're going to be a playoff team. Uh, And whether that involves them winning a play in game or just getting a top six seed, like I see them being in that mix and I, I wouldn't have expected that coming into the season. No. And it would represent significant, significant progress. I mean, this season in and of itself has already represented significant progress for a franchise that desperately needed to show some progress. Yeah. And unlike, you know, in that sort of one-off Jimmy Butler season, this feels sustainable, right? hundred percent. Um, and Edwards obviously is like, if you're looking towards the future, that's where you see this great sense of optimism about, you know, maybe like I I love towns as a player, even though he has left a lot to be desired in terms of just like the force that he plays with in terms of like impact on the game. Like, yeah, but like just his skill set is so tantalizing. Yeah. I think it's maybe fair to say at this point, he could be an unbelievable number two. And maybe if he's your number one, you're a little bit limited, but I think Edwards has shown and he's not there yet. But I think he's shown that, you know, a couple of years down the road, he can be your number one guy. Because as much as the playmaking is still very limited, and as much as the defense, while he's made great strides at that end, still has a ways to go, he has the juice, man. And yeah. and, and it's okay that those things aren't, you know, where you would need them to be of a 1A guy on a title team in year two. Like, it really is okay. Because as you mentioned, he's showing progress in those areas. Yeah. And like... Man, his 
the development of his jump shot and like his step back three pointer and man, can he create a lot of separation with that step back? Like it's, it's gotten so much better. And, you know, you couple that with his explosiveness off the dribble, his ability to get to the rim where he still could get so much better as a finisher. I don't know, man. I, I kind of just think the sky is the limit with that dude. And I think that three man core could potentially have some real staying power. And uh, I'm, you know, fascinated to see where it goes, not just the rest of the season, but into the future. And if they keep those guys together and how good they can be, I think, you know, one thing I'll say with Towns, and it goes to that point about him not always playing with enough force. One of the problems they've run into on offense, and part of the reason that they're sitting there at 22nd right now, is increasingly opposing teams are guarding him with their fours rather than their fives. And they're able to get away with that because, you know, one of Jaden McDaniels or Jared Vanderbilt is on the floor next to him. They need those guys to make their defense work, but you can hide your center on those guys and have him basically play a one man zone around the basket. And I don't think Towns has done enough to punish those matchups against opposing forwards. Like he doesn't get deep catches in the post. Like he allows himself to get pushed out by smaller players and his post-ups, which were once like a real source of efficient offense for him are like terrible this season. And a big part of that is because he's turning the ball over like almost 30% of the time. He finishes a possession out of the post. So that's an area where he needs to improve and the Wolves need to figure out a way around that defensive scheme, uh, I think, in order to really hit their ceiling. I didn't see Joe Wolfon turning into Jimmy Butler, just going at Carl Anthony Towns and the various reasons he's too soft. I, he's been awesome this year in so know, many ways. I know, but, I know. But it's, I, know. Um, I don't know if you saw this, actually. It was after a game that they lost against the Jazz when uh, Bojan Bogdanovic was the primary defender on Towns. Okay. And Gobert was guarding Vanderbilt, basically, and like eliminating the rim. Like the Wolves just couldn't do anything against him. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the game when Edwards and Beverly then criticized Gobert's defense because he wasn't guarding. Yeah, okay. Yeah, right. Which was funny enough on its own, but then... Uh, Edwards was asked after the game about Towns not taking advantage of the matchup against Bogdanovich. And Edwards was like, I'm in Cat's ear all the time, basically telling him like, those guys can't guard you. You need to make quicker decisions, basically. Go faster. Don't let the double teams come. Be more decisive, essentially. Second year player shouldn't have to tell Carl Anthony Towns that. And that's what, so I actually, like I wrote a story about the Wolves and I wrote about all of this stuff. And one of the things I wrote was, it's on the one hand a great sign that like your 20-year-old second-year player has the moxie and the wherewithal to like diagnose that problem and like go to the franchise player and basically tell him what he needs to do. And on the other hand, it's kind of concerning that your would-be franchise player in his seventh season still needs to be coached up by like a 20-year-old second-year player uh, in order to figure out that like he needs to attack those mismatches quicker and be more decisive and more forceful. So it cuts both ways, but regardless of all that, like there are, there are strengths and limitations with this team, but they are never anything less than totally, totally interesting. And um, I'm, you know, as much as any team curious to see where their season goes and what their future looks like. As am I, as am I. All right. With that, I think we can wrap the final episode of 2021 we gave the people their money's worth. We're up over 80 minutes here. 
But of course, before we sign off, I am going to kick it over to you for our final fan shout out of this year. Final fan shout out of 2021 goes to Vithu. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He hit me up on Instagram via DMs about getting a Pound the Rock shout out. I am biased because he is not only a Toronto guy, but a Scarborough guy. So shout out the greatest city in the world, greatest borough. Uh, that's that's me saying that, not me too, just to clarify. Um, he said he's been following the score since back in the TV channel days, and he listens to Pound the Rock religiously on his commute. He is a big fan of the fact that we have gone to two episodes a week, and we are his favorite podcast. He says, keep doing you. And he is also on Twitter at at let's roll yeah vitu thank you for the support thank you for being a good toronto and scarborough boy and yeah just thanks for supporting the show supporting our content supporting our work we always appreciate when people do and that's why we started doing these fan shout outs because we wanted to give some love back to the people who have made this possible for us so Vitu, thank you. Thank you to everyone who we shouted out in 2021. It's the second year we've been doing the shout outs now. We, we have a few left in the chamber for the first few shows of 2022. But I want you, yes, you listening. If you have not reached out to us before for a fan shout out, if we have never shouted you out on an episode of Pound the Rock, hit us up. We want to show you some love. Hit us up on Twitter, at Joseph Cacharo, at Joey W, on Instagram at Joe underscore 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 cash. Email Joe.wolfon at the score.com. Joseph.cacharo at the score.com. And let us know how long you've been listening, what you like about the show, what you don't, where you're listening from, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. Until one of those future episodes, Wolfon, over to you. Thank you as always to all of our listeners, everyone who tuned in for any number of our episodes this past year. We appreciate you. Happy to have you along and can't wait to deliver more content and hopefully give a bunch more shout outs in the new year. But for now, we're going to wrap this one. So for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfond. We'll talk to y'all in 2022.